The people who leave will tell you they stopped believing between the ages of 10 and 17. So before they ever got to university, they had already intellectually checked out and they did it while they were living with us. And we just probably never even noticed. And so what has to happen is we have to say to ourselves, okay, that's, that's good and bad. It's bad in the sense that it's happening on our watch. It's good in the sense that it's happening on our watch. And we could actually do something about this because if they're having skeptical questions and they're checking out while they're in our homes, well, we could actually learn how to answer the skeptical questions while they're in our homes. We are taking a hard look at the reasons why students are leaving the church and leaving the faith. We can easily assume this process begins after they graduate high school, but in reality, it is beginning much earlier than that. In this information age, are we preparing students for the skepticisms they will face before they graduate? I'm Jeff Eckert. I'm Jason Brewer. And this is The Thought Factory. The Thought Factory podcast is brought to you by Never the Same. Cultivating students through biblical discipleship and spiritual disciplines using theology, community, and technology. Learn more at neverthesame.org. We're glad you're with us today on Thought Factory Podcast. We've got a great interview today that we're going to explore here in just a few minutes. Before we do that, we want to let you know, as always, we are so grateful that you're with us, that you're taking your time to hang with us here at Thought Factory, me and Jason. And if you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to this podcast so that when new one comes out, you're you're there, you're with us, you're ready. Thank you for those who have subscribed with the Thought Factory podcast. We appreciate your love and your support. And we also want to bring up the fact that if you want a free gift, because you are someone who listens to this regularly, you can check out neverthesame.org slash podcast, and you will find our Adolescence in the Church Trend Report 2018 so if you want to know what the research is that we are basing a lot of these podcasts on, go there. If you have not gone and done so already, please do so. That's chock full of great information. It's a 20-page, beautifully laid out report with some up-to-date research on what students are thinking and their beliefs and behavior. So we want to get that in your hands. We know you'd really enjoy that. So that's there as a resource for you for free, as Jason mentioned. So make sure you do that. And if you haven't, our last episode was really interesting. We talked with two former students who walked away from their faith. Jason and I, we were their youth pastors. They were both very involved. They were actually both student leaders, different ministries, and we did interviews, and, and it was very insightful as we learned some things from their perspective about why they walked away from their faith after being involved in youth ministry throughout yes. junior and high school. Yeah, we learned some things and as well as reflected on our own leadership. And so we wanted to share those stories with you in hopes to help what you're doing and to be able to reflect on how you are approaching youth ministry and being intentional in guiding the students that you are are in charge of. We kind of look at it as not necessarily a failure, but we look at it as something that we miss on these students. And if we could provide insight into how to lead. We just wanted to provide that for you. And our next episode that's coming up is we're talking with our dear friend, Lindsay Gorbett. We have a discussion about the Bible and youth ministry and where it is currently, where it has been, and where it's going. And that will be pretty eye-opening as well, talking about some real numbers when it comes to what students are thinking, believing about the Bible and how they're putting it into practice in their life. And for today, we are interviewing a man named J. Warner Wallace. He is a man who, who became a Christ follower at the age of 35 after investigating the claims of the New Testament Gospels using his skill set as a detective. He is a cold case homicide detective, but he has also been featured on Dateline a number of times. I believe he is the most featured detective on Dateline to date. He is a popular national speaker and best-selling author of the book Cold Case Christianity, and we have him on the podcast today to talk about student skepticism, walking away from faith, apologetics, his approach to being an atheist, to now being a full-fledged Christ follower. Incredible guy, really looking forward to this interview. We are super excited to have Jay Warner Wallace on the Thought Factory today. Well, what a privilege to have Jay Warner Wallace with us. Talk us through a little bit your background. You became inquisitive about Christianity, I believe, right around uh, age 35 in your 30s. Talk to us about just the process of what that happened. And I'm, I'm really curious, as you do that, 
what was the what was your biggest obstacle to overcome faith for you? Yeah, so I wasn't raised in an environment where I knew any Christians. That was probably a big part of it. And the Christians that I did bump into who were not like part of my family because I didn't have any um, were folks that I encountered professionally, either in my law enforcement career. That's usually where it was. Um, and it really kind of broke into two groups, the group of believers who were police officers, but and they were very investigative and very evidential in their approach to about everything in their professional life. But when you asked them about Christianity, can you tell me why Christianity is true? Can you can you tell me why you think the Bible is reliable? Why would you believe in anything supernatural? Why would you believe in miracles since we don't encounter these at all in our professional work and we don't look to miraculous causes to explain what happens in crime scenes? Tell me why I should embrace any of that nonsense. And they really didn't have good answers. And I just thought, well, that's just confirmation for me. And the only other group we knew collectively who were Christians were the people we were taking to jail because most of those people would tell us they were Christians. So I thought, you know what? Not interested. <laughs> Not interested in either form of this. You know, I, looking back at it, there is something to be said for when you look at a group and you you see people in the group, it's not unusual for you to look at the group and say, can I see myself over there? Could I see myself as part of that group? And the, the, all I saw on the other side were people who were really not um, not really great at defending what they believed. And, and even the people who had been in Christians for years who were believers, who were uh, cops, they weren't good at this. And so I just thought, no, nah, there's no truth to it. And uh, I just stayed out. Uh, now, I got interested only because my wife, when we started having kids, she kind of had a sense, well, you know, should we raise our kids with some kind of belief system that would underpin their moral, you know, their moral beliefs or our, the claims we make to them morally? And so she kind of started to ask that question. As a matter of fact, I pretty much avoided, you know, she would have been willing to take the kids, for example, to a Christian preschool or some sort or a Catholic preschool because we had Catholic churches where we were living at the time. And I was more than happy for her to do that because my dad's the same way. He's not a believer even today, but he's more than happy that I am. And more than happy the believers are in the country. He thinks a country that has Christians in it is a far better place than a country that doesn't have Christians in it. But he thinks it's a kind of silly, useful delusion that builds, you know, good moral fiber in people. But but it's not true. And that's where I was. And so I was willing to go with her just as somebody who would want to please my wife. And that's how I first found myself in a place where somebody could present Jesus of Nazareth. And the, the pastor that day just happened to make a claim about Jesus that piqued my interest. He called Jesus a really smart guy. Uh, he said he was the smartest man who ever lived. He said his moral teaching, just a few sermons, shaped Western culture. And I thought, huh, is that true? So I bought a Bible just to see what Jesus had to say. And that's really how I got started, uh, even reading the Scripture at all. Talk to us now. I'm, I'm just curious, as I hear you talking about your view of the supernatural. I wasn't just a guy who was ignorant of both positions. I, I just was a science guy who held the very philosophically natural presupposition to everything. If I'm looking for causal explanations, I was going to look for causal explanations that involve space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. That's it. That's all that exists in the physical realm. That's that's really where I stayed. I mean, I thought that I might even, and even when I first started reading through the Gospels, I said, well, there's, there's, I'm sure there's some truth about Jesus of Nazareth in here. But when it gets to the to the miracle stuff, that's clearly stuff that's not true. It's mythology that's been woven into the text. And I stood in that position for a long time. And I, it, my process of working through the scriptures was really forensic in the sense that I knew how to assess eyewitness accounts. I even knew how to assess written eyewitness accounts because I had been trained to do that. So we would often have our suspects write out you know, what their claims were. They would write out what they were allegedly doing on the day of the murder, and then we would assess those writings to, to look for deception indicators and compression of time, expansion of time, use of pronouns, use of optional words. We're looking at all these things to see if we can spot whether this guy is telling us the truth or not. And that's really my approach to the Gospels. I said, okay, I'm just going to take that same approach, and let's see if we can figure out if any of this stuff is true. And that's really how I, I began investigating the Gospels. Jim, you come from an investigative background and an experience as a cold case homicidal detective, and you've used that to drive you to prove that Jesus existed, that God exists, that the resurrection was real. 
And you've authored books, you've developed uh, an mm -hmm. app, websites, and compiled a lot of work. But what drives you in your work to develop all of that? Okay, well, one thing first, let me just say this. Okay, I am a cold case homicide detective, but I'm not a cold case homicidal detective <laughs> because, because that would make me sound like I'm out to kill people. But I'll just tell you that of those two things, I think that one skill set drove me to at least discover what was true. And then I realized once I got involved in the church, right, because this is many years later, I became a youth pastor. And it was as a youth pastor that I realized we got a problem. And the problem we have is that we've got large numbers of young people who are walking away from the church. And I saw this even back, you know, what, probably now close to 15 years ago uh, when I first started collecting the data and started seeing it in my own youth ministry that the graduated seniors, you know, our juniors and seniors the next year would still know some of those kids. And they would come back from all these universities here on the West Coast, Berkeley, Sonoma State, different places up and down the West Coast. And they were no longer Christians. And they would tell this to the people who were still in my youth group. So I, we, I was getting reports back that, you know, so-and-so is no longer a Christian. And I was like, wow. One year, the first year I graduated seniors, all but one walked away from the church. And I thought, I'm like the worst youth pastor ever, right? I mean, <laughs> this is happening on my watch. But the reality was that I wasn't the only one who this was happening to. And so that became, for me, I just needed to, to find out what is it that is problematic. Now, look. Students will tell you it's any number of reasons why they are walking away. And what the real reason is, is usually embedded much deeper than that. But what they'll verbalize to you is some form, most of the time, some form of intellectual skepticism. That may not be what's really the tail that's wagging the dog, but that's the thing they'll say, because that certainly sounds smart, right? They've heard a lot of things, but by the time they, they'll walk away and they'll offer some form of intellectual objection. Uh, that they didn't think that the church could answer, that their their youth pastors, their own Christian parents weren't good at answering, and the alternative explanations they were getting someplace else were pretty good. And those alternative explanations, by the way, allowed them to live their life any way they wanted to live it. Those alternative explanations gave them the autonomy they were looking for to begin with. So it's like a win-win, right? So I knew that that was part of what I was going to have to do with my own group was to help show them the process that I went through which for a long time, I just, you know, I'm also, I was raised in the arts. So when I first became a youth pastor, I have a degree in design. I have a bachelor's in design, a master's in architecture. So I, before I ever became a police officer, I was always pretty heavily involved in the arts. And so when I first became a youth pastor, youth ministry was far more art oriented than it was apologetics oriented. And I just realized at some point, though, that was not that was not sufficient for my students, and I needed to turn a corner. And so we just started reshaping our entire approach to youth ministry to try to address this one issue, which is the departure of young people from the church. We've been talking about that. It's fascinating to hear you affirm and, and echo some of the things that we've been thinking, talking about out loud in this podcast. But talk about the shift that youth ministries can make between being maybe more you know, you use the example of artistic, but maybe even more emotion-centered or based to a more of an intellectual approach and how you balance those two things, because it also ties in with some of the things I've heard you talk about in your other um, recordings about truth and testimony. So talk to us about how those work together. I get kind of some pushback a little bit about what my approach to testimony really is, because when I was first looking at Christianity, my family is all atheists, except I do have a stepmother who is Mormon, and I have six stepbrothers and sisters, half-brothers and sisters, who are all raised Mormon. So I had a group out there of theists, but they weren't Christian theists. They were Mormon theists. And the approach that they took, believe it or not, toward trying to convince me that, that Mormonism was true is sometimes the exact same approach that Christians try to take to demonstrate that Christianity is true. Because if you ask Christians around the country why you're a Christian, the largest percentage of responses is, well, I was raised in the church. You know, my parents are Christians. This is I, I grew up this way. That is by far the most popular answer. The second most popular is I've had some experience that I can testify about, some experience that demonstrated for me that Christianity is true. It could be I saw a miracle in my own life. I prayed for something that I saw or I felt God's presence in some point in my life. These are both, by the way, good answers, but those are the same answers that my Mormon brothers and sisters also give for why they are Mormon. And they're the same answers why most Muslims say that they're Muslim. 
why most Buddhists would say they're Buddhists. I mean, these, these two answers are the most popular answers regardless of theistic worldview. So I thought to myself, okay, great. We can all say this, but if everyone says this, why would you think that your version of this is better than their version of this? In the end, it doesn't really matter what my personal testimony is. And so when people ask me, well, tell me about your testimony. Well, why do you even care? What you ought to care about is, is this true? That's the thing that ought to guide all of us. And I actually think that in a world where everyone's got an opinion and everyone's website looks great, it's not like our students, Gen Z has got any problem getting information. Gen Z can get information sideways. I mean, you can get it everywhere you look. The problem is, is really trusting what authority it is that you're going to follow because that's where I think we have a confusion in this generation about what's authoritative, who should I trust? And we say this. I mean, Sean McDowell and I are just finished writing a book on teaching Christian worldview to Gen Z. It comes out next year. And we always talk about this, that this is about truth and relationship. These are two sides of the same coin. They cannot be separated. But if the only thing that makes your version of truth is the strength of your relationship, well, then how do I convince my Mormon family to have a great relationship with their mom that Mormonism isn't true, that their relationship with their mom is stronger than the relationship is with me? And if it's all built on relationships alone, then we've got a problem, I think. So I think it's not an either or, it's a both and. But we ought to be able to say, hey, I've had this personal experience with God, but let me show you why I know it was Yahweh. It was the Christian God of the New Testament. Let me show you why evidentially I know that's what my experience is grounded in. And it's not just like everyone else has got an experience. This is something different because the evidence actually points to the New Testament and demonstrates what the New Testament claims are true about Jesus. Therefore, when I have a, an experience that I interpret as divine, I know what God is in play, because I've got a good evidential case I can make for Christianity. And I think that's where we're going to have to, at some point, land this, right? Because in the end, if you look at the surveys that have been done related to students, and I have collected all of them over the years since 1999, they're on one page on our website. It just has, and it says updated. If you type in updated at coldcasechristianity.com, you'll find that article. You can see what young people are saying when asked, why are you leaving? What was it that was your big objection? What's the problem here? And you will see that the vast majority offers some form of intellectual skepticism. Now, I think it's time for us to at least address those claims. So if that's not really what the problem is, at least we can knock that off the table. But if it is what the problem is, then let's, let's address it. And if we're going to allow them to tell us what the problem is, well, that's what they say it is. So maybe we should actually address those issues. Jim, in your book, Cold Case Christianity, you mentioned the comparison between faith and reason, and that reason should not be viewed as the opposite of faith, but instead unbelief. And then you're calling Christians to have a reasonable faith based on the evidential support that you were talking about. Have you seen or experienced a lot of more of the, the blind faith, or are you seeing a trend in the evidential support in why people believe in Christianity? What I see is that the church is both shrinking and staying the same in the sense that every year, about a percent of people who would say they were part of the Christian church will say, I'm no longer part of the Christian church, but I'm not an atheist yet. I'm, I'm just going to say I have no religious affiliation. So over the last 15 years or so, about 15% of less Christians than there were at the last time it was taken 15 years ago. And if you look at the number of people who say they have no religious affiliation, they call these the nuns. They check the box that says, what religious affiliation do you have? They have none. So that rise of the nuns is about at the same pace increasing as Christianity is decreasing. So we can kind of see where these folks are going. But when you ask who's left, what do you think Christianity even teaches or represents? It turns out that of the 70% uh, or so that are still claiming to be Christians in 2015, only about 20% of those actually know what Christianity teaches. The rest are people who like to identify as Christians, but they don't really know what it teaches. They don't even really know what it means foundationally, theologically. Well, that group that does know what it means, that hasn't shrunken at all. That, for the most part, has stayed pretty stable. But the group that has been identifying themselves as Christians without really knowing what that even means, they have been steadily leaving us. So I think part of this is going to be about us saying, well, look, do you know why this is true? And do you know what this teaches? So we're going to have to spend some time doing that with students, right? And what I've discovered is, is that the more that I showed students why this is true, 
I saw two things happen. Number one, fewer will ever leave us. This is now anecdotal. I have no like nationwide statistics for this. This is just in my own youth ministry. And two, the folks who step out for a season are stepping out because they're denying the truth and they know they are eventually return because at some point it's like that rubber band theology, right? You can pull that band out just so far, but the further you pull it, the more it hurts when you let go. So you're probably smart to keep it pretty close. And I've seen students do that over the last couple of years as they've kind of wandered off, but then eventually return to what they think or know is evidentially true. So I think there's some value in that as well. But, but yeah, I think what I see more than anything else in the church is that people are in the right place, but don't know why it's the right place. And so when I say the church, I'm in Los Angeles, right? Los Angeles County. So this is a very different place for the church than, say, uh, Mississippi or Northeast Texas or wherever you might be in the Bible Belt. And what I see when I travel a lot is that, yeah, for the most part, the church still does not know why this is true. And to be honest, they're not even sure they, they really have a need to know why it's true. I've spent some time really trying to make the case for making the case. Because it, sadly, a lot of churches don't even see a need. We already know it's true. So why do I need to look at all this evidence? And if I do look at the evidence, why are you calling it faith? If you only believe this on the basis of evidence, why are you calling this faith to begin with? They almost have a theological resistance to this idea of helping our students know that this is true evidentially because they feel like, well, then it wouldn't be faith. So we have to kind of start walking through those definitions for people. That's where I really see a generation gap in what you're talking about, because I think those of us immersed in working with students on a regular basis understand that it is important to know, because this generation, probably unlike maybe any generation before in our nation's history, are asking the questions already, even when they're in high school. A lot of what we started with, right, is we started with this kind of anecdotal experience. And Sean and I, Sean was a high school teacher, Sean McDowell, and that's Josh McDowell's son. Uh, he was teaching high school and seeing this, and we were taking these trips, these immersive experiences to Berkeley, to Salt Lake City, where we're teaching our students theology, teaching our students apologetics so they can go on the campuses and on the city streets in those two cities and speak theologically with Mormons and speak apologetically with the non-believers in, in the Berkeley area. And we were doing this because it was really anecdotal, right? But we're watching all this, the national surveys. We're collecting all of those. We're kind of wondering, is everyone having the same experience that we are, you know, or just something that's purely anecdotal? It's our issue. It's our problem. And it's nobody else's. I think it's pretty clear, though, given the trajectory of culture, that this is a national problem for the church. And I think we should probably try to address it, right? And again, it's always going to be in the context of relationships, of course. That's so foundational that if we're not careful, and you know, you've talked to people who are interested in apologetics, who sometimes that's not their strength, right? They're like fact people, right? They got the facts. We have the evidence, but we maybe don't have the relational gifts, right, that we would be able to, uh, you know, a lot of cops are this way, right? We, we know it's true. We, we do the job, but you're probably not the greatest person to hang out with off duty. Well, I want us to develop a whole generation of youth leaders that are both of these things, have all those relational skills so they know how to love students. That's who they are to begin with. But at the same time, they know that part of loving our students is to equip them so they can protect themselves from error. And that's, I think, a part of what we have to do. When you're a parent, you make sacrifices for your kids. I remember my kids are grown now. I have four. But when they were in junior high and high school, I mean, I didn't go to the places I wanted to go to eat. I went to the places my kids would eat. You know, I didn't go to the vacations I wanted to take. I took the vacations that would be good for my family and affordable. I didn't even see the movies I wanted to see. I saw the movies they wanted to see. You know, these are the things that you do. You make these sacrifices for your kids. Well, I think the church has got a bunch of kids. And we have to make a decision as the parents, all of us collectively, because we're all raising the next generation in the church. Even if those aren't your biological kids, they are your spiritual kids. And we have to make a decision. Are we willing to make some sacrifices, right? It's, it may not be the approach you want to take. It doesn't maybe serve you the way it can serve them, but hey, make the sacrifice for kids. It may not be the kind of worship music that you would prefer or the, the kind of lecture series or the sermon series that you think would be maybe, but look, in the end, you'd have no problem sitting in that movie two hours a week with your kids that you didn't want to go to because you knew it was good for your kids. Well, the same thing I think is true here. We have to kind of decide, are we willing to prioritize away from all the things that make us comfortable as adults 
and move toward those things that would actually bless our kids. And I think that's part of what we have to make a decision about. Man, if every pastor in America could hear what you just said, that was so good. And we're going to take a break here. When we come back, I want to talk to you just about where we're going here, about solutions and what we can do on our end, working with students to really guide them in the right way. Hey, Dan Seaborn here from Winning at Home. I've had the privilege of being friends with Jeff and Jason. Uh, Jeff, known as a youth pastor comrade for many years, Jason effectively uh, made a difference in my daughter's life. Let me just say something. This thing they developed, the NTS camps, never the same. I believe that statement's so true. These guys are pouring their heart and soul into make a difference in the lives of teens and effectively in the lives of parents as well. And I want to encourage you. I endorse them fully. Get your kids to these camps because if they go there, they won't be the same. They will come home with a different attitude, different spirit. Everything you're looking for, that's what they're going to come home with. And so I challenge you as a parent, I challenge you even as a teen, consider it because I believe this will make a mark for the kingdom and a mark in your life. Check it out. I highly encourage you to pursue this because I believe it will be effective in furthering the walk of your family with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's keep going here. Let's talk about solutions because uh, we do live in an age, like you mentioned earlier, of bad information and students are more skeptical than they've ever been because of the information age, in my opinion. So let's talk about our approach and our work with students and use this term a lot and you have it in your information about being a case maker. Talk about what that looks like for us as youth workers to be making case making students. So I use this term because the alternative is to be an apologist, right? And everyone thinks that's a terrible term, and I agree. I I didn't have a church upbringing, so when I first heard that term, I I kind of agree with everybody else. That term really is lame. You know, it doesn't seem like (laughs) who the heck wants to be apologizing all the time. And if you said, well, we're making a defense for Christianity, that doesn't even sound better to me. It sounds like, well, because now you're being defensive about Christianity. Mm. I thought, we've got to find a new way. So I started saying, well, no, I'm a Christian case maker. I just make an affirmative case for what I believe, which if you think about it, everyone does pretty much no matter what they believe. If you're a fan of the Green Bay Packers, well, then guess what? You're probably making a case for why the Green Bay Packers are the are the best football team out there, whatever your team is. All of us do this. We all make a case constantly for the things we think are important to us. Why wouldn't we be the same with Christianity? And so I knew that we were going to have to do something and you're absolutely, what you said a minute ago is so true, right? So we have so much access to information. And then I did a good job, I hope, of designing our website so it would look professional, it would look authoritative, let's put it that way. But I'm not the only person who's doing that. Everyone's doing that. Regardless of their worldview, they've got an authoritative-looking website, right? That's just the nature of the generation we're living in. Okay, so how do we then decide which of these authoritative sources is truly authoritative? Well, I think when all things come down to equal— we have to do two things. We have to, number one, demonstrate that we have enough mastery of the, of the topic so that students go, well, yeah, he seems like he knows what he's talking about. And then two, build a relationship with students that is authentic, that's not just for the purpose of communicating information. By the way, if that's it, if we're thinking, hey, I got something I want to tell these kids and it's going to have to come out tonight, so I'm going to do my best to build a relationship in 30 minutes so I can, well, no, that, that isn't going to work. I mean, even my own kids, right? They have to know that there's a lot of times when I don't talk about any of this stuff with them, but, I, but I'm doing things that I hope demonstrate to them that I care about them, uh, that they are my kids. And this is also true as a youth pastor. I mean, I started late, so I didn't even become a Christian until I was 35. So I didn't start youth pastoring until I was in my early 40s. And and as I was doing it, I realized that I was like the oldest guy that I knew who was doing this work. Even some of the bigger youth pastors out here on the West Coast were younger than I was. And I felt like, well, I I can't be cool with these kids. I don't do the things that they would do. I'm not a board sport guy. You know, in California, everything is either going to be surfing, skateboarding, wakeboarding, snowboarding, something with a board. I wasn't any of those things. And And I also knew that I didn't want to get injured off-duty, because getting injured off-duty pays a lot less than getting injured on-duty. And I've been a police officer my entire life during this time. So I wasn't about to go out on a, and, and get injured. Say, so how am I going to bond with these students when I don't do the things that those students do? There's probably people listening to this that feel the same way. You know, they feel like, I can't be that guy because I don't, I'm not a cool guy and I don't dress that way and I can't relate that. Either can I. But I'll tell you this, I can be paternal. And I can love on these kids like they're my own. That's right. And and then if I do that, uh, I, I learned this working gangs. I worked gangs for two years in South Central Los Angeles. And during that time, 
I was the least gangish guy you could possibly imagine. I had a partner who was a lot younger than me, who was a lot cooler than me, and he could play that part. He could talk the talk. He could walk the walk. That was not me. And so I knew that I had to take a different approach with the gangsters that I was meeting every day on the streets. And so I just said, okay, I'm like, dad, I want to be the guy that when you got a problem and you just need to talk to dad, I'm that guy. I can come along and give you the advice I would give my own kids, even though you're running into some clique of some gang here in Southern California, I could at least be that guy. And that's the, the only way in. So I think what has to happen is, is that we have to love on our students enough so they, they know who we are and that we care about them. And we have to be knowledgeable enough to be able to answer their questions. The one thing that's the most remarkable about the surveys that I've been collecting over the years is that you know the first generation of surveys was our students leaving. And those start around 1999, early 2000s, and we get a lot of rich data about how many are leaving. Then the next set of surveys was, well, why are they leaving? And that's when they started asking questions. And the better ones of those are the ones where they just leave it open-ended and they're not multiple choice. And students just tell you in their own words why they're leaving. The third generation of surveys has been about when did you start to check out? Because our assumption has always been it's happening in college. And so we have to kind of prepare kids for college, blah, blah, blah. I definitely have taken that approach in the past. But when you, those surveys started coming back in the last three to five years, we realized that, no, this is the people who leave will tell you they stopped believing between the ages of 10 and 17. So before they ever got to university, they had already intellectually checked out and they did it while they were living with us. And we just probably never even noticed. And so what has to happen is we have to say to ourselves, okay, that's that's good and bad. It's bad in the sense that it's happening on our watch. It's good in the sense that it's happening on our watch. And we could actually do something about this because if they're having skeptical questions and they're checking out while they're in our homes, well, we could actually learn how to answer the skeptical questions while they're in our homes. <laughs> and that might, mm. might help us address the issue. So, so a lot of it for me has been, okay, how do we embrace, my kids know I love them, but how do they see me as somebody who knows what I'm talking about when it comes to the Christian worldview, when it comes to why Christianity is true? I think most of us can say we do pretty well at loving on our kids, but we don't always, when it comes down to, well, how do I make a case for this? They'll say, well, Jim, can I buy your book? Uh, really? You want to buy my book? Yeah, I, I'll sell you a book. Your kids aren't going to read it, especially if they're already in college. This is something we need to be talking about with our kids when they're very young. And I would say as parents, we need to read those books. We need to master that evidence. So when our kids ask us a question, we don't just say, hey, here's a book. We have to be able to answer that question ourselves. We have to be the best apologist, the best case maker that our kids will ever meet because they're not going to read my book. They're not going to read Sean's books. We just We know that. But we do know there's work to be done, and it's probably not necessarily with students as much as it is with their parents. I used to think, well, I would rather speak to students than their parents, to be honest with you. But as that's over the time has changed for me, because I realize that so much of this work has to be done by parents, that that's an important audience to reach young people. Their parents are really critical to this process. And so so I've changed my tune on that. Yeah, I love speaking to students. And it's so much fun. So, but it turns out that the most important work that's being done is not by those of us who call ourselves apologists, it's by those parents who have decided to take on this responsibility. So we want to help them. Jeff and I are both former youth pastors as well. And hearing you talk about the time when you were a youth pastor and you felt the same pull of the majority of these students are walking away from their faith. And so what can we do? And we've been asking the same kind of question. We've been interviewing former students that have walked away from the faith and really asking this question, what can we do as youth leaders, as youth pastors to reverse the trend? So I'm asking, how would you describe a youth ministry that is winning in terms of preparing their students in regards to defending their faith and providing the case for Christianity? Okay, I'm going to say something that sounds controversial at first, and this is what we had to shift right away. And I don't know why I didn't do it earlier, because to be honest, I know this as a first responder. I know this truth. I just didn't apply it in my thinking to our youth ministry until much later. But I would tell any youth pastor who's listening to stop teaching. Stop teaching immediately because it's a waste of time. And we know it's a waste of time because we've got excellent teachers in the church, They've been there all along. Youth pastors are sometimes some of the best teachers in the church, and we still have this problem. 
So clearly, whatever you've been doing as a great teacher is not having the kind of impact it could. You've got to shift from a teaching model to a training model. That's a completely different idea, but it's got some similar footing. And what it really means is, you know, teaching can just kind of sound like blah, blah. Could you imagine if you had a class with me in algebra and I told you that I'm going to teach you algebra, but I'm never going to test you. So just know that you've all got A's right now. You're going to have A's in this class. So I'm just going to go ahead and teach you, but I'm never going to give you a test. So just relax. You know, just enjoy this. There's a lot to learn here, but you're never going to have to take a test. Well, look, you've got other classes at school that are going to have tests. So where do you think all of your studying time, where's all your attention going to go? It's going to go to those classes where there is a test. As a church, we have been saying, hey, we're going to teach you a bunch of stuff that we're never going to put into practice. So there's never going to be a test, really. Uh, and we haven't even connected our teaching to the test. And so the first thing I said was, okay, so I know how to change this. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to stop teaching. We're going to start training. Teaching becomes training when you establish the challenge. So fighters get fat in between fights. The old days, you know, MMA is a little bit different because you see they're almost, they're fighting a lot closer together. But it used to be back when Muhammad Ali was the champion, okay, you wouldn't have a fight for six months. Yeah. And in those six months, you'd, get, you'd gain 25 pounds. And then you'd sign a contract 12 weeks out, and you would train your <laughs> rear end off to get in the best shape of your life before the, the actual fight. Why? Because you're about to get in the ring and get your clock clean. So you're going to have to train and get in shape before you enter the ring. So it turns out the ring is what motivates fighters to train. And that's what happens here. I have to establish a ring event for my students and then teach toward that event. And so if I want to teach theology, which I did, look, I could do series on the creeds. I could do series on the deity of Christ. I could do series on the nature of God. I can do all the omnis. I could figure out all these things to do, right? But the minute I said to them, we're going to spend eight days in Salt Lake City and in Provo, Utah, on the campus of BYU, going door to door as street evangelists in the city of Provo, where there's the most returned Mormon missionaries anywhere on the planet. We're going to be on Temple Square. We're going to be talking to Mormon believers and sharing the gospel with them. And trust me, they already know more about the Bible than you do, and they see you as the lost people group. But we're going to have a time of a lifetime. You're never going to forget this trip. Well, I got buy-in pretty quickly from my students. They wanted to have a, a crazy trip. So they said, yes, they would go. But then they knew they had to train because they were not ready. And we demonstrated that they weren't ready. So they knew right away. They were stinking at this theology thing. They were just terrible at it. So, so they were now paying attention because they knew they were about to get spanked if they didn't know enough to be able to stand their footing as a Christian. And if they didn't know that before they got to Utah, oh my gosh, the first night at Utah, these kids are in their Bible, like frantically trying to make a case theologically for their position because they just got owned out there by people who, <laughs> who saw them as lost people group. And they love God, and they just are mistaken about who God is, but they seriously have a heart for us. They will do more for this lie than we will do for the truth. And so we have to be able to, to share Christ with those people. And I took that trip every June for as long as I was a youth pastor. It was a transformational experience. We just, just said, okay, we're going to take missions trips, but they're going to be immersive, theological, and apologetics, philosophical missions trips. And those students, after just one trip, were more than willing to never do another wakeboard trip or never do another surfing trip again. One actually said to me, hey, I think we'll ever go back and do another wakeboard trip or another snowboarding trip. I said, well, we can, but what do, we, what do you want to cancel, Berkeley or Utah? And they're like, eh, never mind. <laughs> and I thought, okay. So they realized the value of it. And these trips were fun. They were crazy fun. Young people will do crazy things that their parents will find a way out of. Okay. Yeah, but that's true. young people go, they're like, I'll go, I'll try it. Yeah. They're like, they're up for it. So, so we could ask them to do crazy things and they would do them. And so I think that's part of the process as we've shifted from teaching to training we talk about this in the next book, Sean and I have written, because I want to be able to share that model in great detail. How do you take those kinds of trips? How do you prepare for those kinds of trips? And I'll just say one more thing. I also learned a very simple tool that if you don't think you can do immersive trips across the country, I get that. Okay, how about this? Never, ever tell your students a what without two whys. So two whys for every what. Just keep that principle in your head. Two whys for every what, and you will change the way your students think. Because we have a tendency to say, here is what we believe. 
about the deity of Christ. Here is what we believe about the triune nature of God. Whatever. It's a what. Always give the what, and then the first why is, okay, why do you believe that's true? On the, on the basis of what good biblical and philosophical evidence should I believe that claim? That historical claim about the resurrection, that historical claim about some New Testament event, why should I believe that? What is the evidence for that? So that there's the first why. The second why is, okay, great, you got this claim and you've made a case for it, but why do I care? I mean, what's it to me? It doesn't impact, okay, that's great. I'm glad you like that. I'm glad you believe that, but it has no impact on me. So the two whys are, why is it true and why should it matter to me? And if you just cover that for every what claim you make in front of your students, you will see a difference in the quality of what your students believe and how they embrace it. Jim, talk to us about not just students defending their faith, but also sharing their faith. Yeah, this is the thing, right? So it used to be, this is where I think that we have to, all of us who do this work have to make a decision about, well, what when we say we want you to share your faith, what does that look like? So, and for me, because I had no background as a Christian, I just dropped into this from outer space. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have a church tradition. Uh, I just knew that I could see how Christians shared what they believed in a book called the book of Acts. It was the only really aside from Jesus sharing, that's different. He's Jesus. I needed to know uh, how are the, what are the people who aren't Jesus? What do they do? And so I I said, okay, I'm going to start looking to see if there's an example of this. And, and the only example I could find was in the book of Acts. Now you tell me there's no way of the master in the book of Acts. There's not even, hey, you know what, uh, you're a sinner in need of a Savior. What you see in the book of Acts 99% of the time is, hey, the Old Testament predicted A, B, and C, and we saw it come, we saw it happen with our own eyes. We're here to testify that we saw the risen Christ. All the predictions of the Messiah, we saw them manifest in Jesus of Nazareth. That's a very different approach. That's testimony, but it's not personal testimony in the sense that it's really a claim about something that's objectively true. And so that's my question is, if we're going to train students to share the gospel, what does that look like? I used to use this when I first started. Listen, I'm a guy who came to faith on the basis of evidence. But when I first started teaching my own students, it almost always began with their personal testimony. That's the only resources I could find that I could dip into were these, you know, his story and your story. You know, you've, so, so, so I thought, okay, great. Well, the his story part is the part that really is is the, the the hinge in all of this. How well are our students prepared? So when someone says, yeah, but you can't believe that Bible. I mean, it's been translated and retranslated thousands of times. We don't even have the originals anymore. So we don't even have a, a single original copy of any New Testament book. So why in the world should I? And not only that, we don't have a, a, a copy at all. The most ancient copies we have are like 300 years after the fact. And when you compare the most ancient copies to each other, they, they have more variations than they have words in the New Testament. Why in the world would I trust that? I would never trust that. It's not like you're asking me to go back to the Constitution. I can find the original and see if you're telling me the truth. There is no original for you guys. That's a very simple statement. Yeah. I'll bet you that 99% of Christians would be stopped cold in their tracks with that one. This is what Mark Ehrman writes about in Jesus Interrupted, right? He says this is what happened to him. Raised in a Christian family, goes to Moody Bible Institute, hears that in his uh, freshman year. And he's out. Done. See ya. Okay, so I just think when we share these claims, I don't think anymore we're not a pre-Christian nation. We're not even a Christian nation. We're a post-Christian nation. We're a nation full of people who have heard the gospel, but they say, I don't want it. They are prepared to offer objections now, which you won't hear if you go to South Africa. You won't hear this in parts of the you know places where they're still pre-Christian, but you will hear objections in post-Christian nations. Our students at least have to be able to answer the objections if they're going to share the gospel. Yeah, yeah. We knew going into this interview, Jason and I, that, that we hope this would be the first of many, and now I'm completely convinced that we want to get you back because your heart for students— your understanding of how they think and how we need to approach it. We just resonate with it so much, and we are so grateful for your time, your ministry. I want to mention to everyone here, if there's anything you want to add, but your website, Cold Case Christianity, as well as your app, there are amazing resources on there. And even for students, we talked about this in a different episode about your app, but the audio with the podcast links as well as the video, the YouTube links, and all the other articles on your app, are great not only for youth workers but students. So those are incredible resources, and 
are very impressive. Anything else you want to say to point anyone to any of your resources? Oh, well, listen, I'm, I'm just happy to be a part of this. You know, we, we realized when we heard that kids were leaving from between 10 and 17, and we kind of saw that in our own anecdotally, we said, okay, we got to shift our teaching. So that's why we started writing a series of kids books, which are available at Case Makers Academy. So all of our adult resources have been rewritten as fictional narratives that teach critical thinking. And there's three books that are available at casemakersacademy.com. And that's an entire academy with free resources, videos for each chapter, downloadable sheets. I mean, there's so much free content at Casemakers Academy, and it's designed for students 8 to 12 because we knew that we could inoculate students if we got to them before the, you know, the age of doubt for me or my generation uh, was probably around 18, 19, 20 years of age, because that's where you would first encounter opposing ideas in university. But that is not the age of doubt for Gen Z. They've got that entire world of information at the end of their arm in the glowing rectangle, right? So they can actually access all kinds of information. You'd be amazed at what eight and nine-year-olds now are asking. I, I was just at a conference last weekend. An eight-year-old comes up and wants to know who created God. If God is the creation of everything, and everything that you know has a beginning, the universe is created. Okay, if God created the universe, who created God? Simple question, an easy question, really, to be able to articulate. But her parents couldn't give her the answer to that question, so they brought her to me. At eight or nine years old, I'm not sure that this is maybe the first or second generation in which a student that young would have a question like that, because when I was growing up, the only people you could ask were your parents, and you probably weren't even exposed to the question until you are much older. So I think we need to start earlier, and that's why we've tried to kind of target that 8 to 12-year-old range. And so I just suggest that if you're listening to this program, um, you care about your own kids. You probably would say you care about your own kids more than you care about you. Do we care about the kids in our church more than we care about us? If so, I think we'd say, okay, then every ministry, I think every apologetics ministry ought to be geared at young people yeah. because that, that's who we're trying to reach. Well, Jim, thank right, you so guys, much for very your time. Good. Thanks so much for having me. Let me know when you post this, and I'll point I, people to it. Yeah, I'll okay? definitely send you a link. Appreciate it. All right, thanks. Hey, thanks, guys. We'll Appreciate you. you. All right. Thanks. Bye. All right, talk to you soon. Okay. All right, bye. The Thought Factory podcast is brought to you by Never the Same, whose vision is to see new generations transformed in Christ to further the kingdom of God. Learn more at neverthesame.org. All right, we're here in the bonus segment of the podcast, and in the bonus segment, we've been talking about what is coming up on July 4th weekend 2020. It's an event called Claim Your Campus 2020, and we've got an executive team of leaders from across the nation that are involved in planning this, as well as many organizations and many other entities, ministries, denominations that are on board with this. But the other thing that's really cool is I'm sitting here with a high school student named Taylor from Atlanta, Georgia. And Taylor is involved in Claim Your Campus right now, currently in her school. She meets every week for prayer. She is a high-level leader as a high school student. And um, she's a part of the executive team for this event. So we've got people from 17 all the way up to 70 on our team and everywhere in between that's planning this. So Taylor... Talk to us about like your perspective. What are you excited about for Claim Your Campus 2020? Wow, uh, there are just so many things that I'm excited about to see come into play. I'm just one of the things I'm really excited about is having a hundred thousand students in the same place, uh, having their perspective change of their school campus. I think that's such a big thing, and them all being together in one place, and them seeing that yeah, they're not alone, and they're tens of thousands of other students doing the same thing and wanting the same thing for their schools. And Taylor, you've seen some crazy things happen in your school. Um, but what excites me about you is knowing your story and you've been involved in Claim Your Campus since you're a freshman is seeing the changes in your life, what God's done in you. And what gets me pumped up is to think about a field full of Taylor's at this event that are going to go back and change their school and take prayer and really um, see that as, as a way to make a difference. And so youth leaders, parents, others, adults are listening to this. Um, tell them why you think they should 
take the time, effort, and resources as adults to take students to this event. Yeah, and honestly, just going back to my story, uh, I'm a senior this year, and when I was a freshman, I really had believed that God, that God didn't have a plan for me and that I didn't have a purpose because of the mistakes that I had made. And through Claim Your Campus, uh, this ministry has taught me that it doesn't matter what I've done in my past, God can still use me. He will use me and he wants to use me and I have purpose. And I'm just thinking of all of the other students who are in the same place I was a few years ago, thinking that they can't make a difference and not even trying, because what's the point to them seeing that God has so much in store for them that they can't even imagine and then just running with that because once you understand that and once you like once that clicks with you there's no going back there's just not so you're listening to this and you know students think about students that that uh, are coming to mind right now that need to be at this event now if you're listening to this in 2018 we're talking about eighth ninth maybe 10th graders that would be there and younger because it's summer of 2020 but seeing what um, Taylor's done in her school seeing what God's done in her life and seeing how claim your campus really gave her the it just empowered you to do this uh, at your school and that's what this event is, uh, is about is mobilizing um, yeah this movement so one final word Taylor um, give a final little encouragement to people um, thinking about checking this out claim your campus 2020 what would you say I mean really you have nothing to lose I mean just come out and just see what it's all about because uh, I'm telling you you're not going to regret it just the amount of people that I know in my school whose lives have been changed because of this uh, and so many people have come to Christ just in my school because of this um, it's just why wouldn't you go I mean you know, just come and check it out. So the next step, if you're listening to this and you're you're interested and you don't uh, know much, maybe you want to know more, if you go on Facebook, go to the Claim Your Campus Advocates. It's a group on Facebook. It's Claim Your Campus Advocates. It's a place where adults, where we're connecting, giving up-to-the-date information uh, about what's happening, what you can do to get involved. And it really starts with you choosing a school and becoming an advocate, and that starts with praying for a school. It's simple as that. That's what we're doing. So do that. If you're interested, go to that group, join it, and you can stay in the loop. Thanks for listening.